Hello and welcome to the Lazy Book Club podcast, the book club for those who don't want to read or leave the house. My name is Matt Gonzalez. Hello, I'm David Cox. (laughs) And I'm Josh Matheson. Today's episode is brought to you by our amazing sponsors on Patreon. Thank you guys so much for your support. If you would like to join our Patreon ranks, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash lazy book club pod, where for the very small fee of $3 a month, you get an extra episode a month and you also get to watch the videos where you get to see Josh do all of his amazing fancy hand movements as he's doing these acts. Matt is saving up for a cloak, which he wants to wear about. So that's why that's why you're doing it. That's, yeah. yeah, it's not. I think I'm about to twenty pounds else. up. Yeah, and, and the more Patreon subscribers we get, the more special effects we put into our videos. Yes, and Josh, Josh is visiting the science museum next week, and would like to have enough money to buy a souvenir, like An a rubber or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. brand no. eraser. Yeah. This week, we are looking at chapter seven of the 39 steps, which I believe is the dry fly fisherman. Correct. We have a break from the adventures of. Apparently, it's not interesting enough, this chapter, to be considered an adventure. It's just a guy fishing for the whole chapter. That's going to be like, have you caught anything yet? Nope. No. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, is that a nibble? No, no, it's just a... Is it just... What's it? Is, is Hannay just trying to cook his... um To, like, catch his lunch? Is that what this whole chapter is? I'm hungry, yeah, so I'm going fishing, and I'm just going to sit here for the whole chapter until I've caught something. Yeah, maybe maybe the dry fly... It doesn't refer to the type of fishing. It's actually just a really dry chapter, and, and this, yeah. this fly fisherman is just really dry and boring. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, last week we actually had quite an exciting chapter... We had Hanay yeah. caught by the bald archaeologist who turns out to be kind of the big man in charge of the people trying to stop this news getting out. Mm. He's the guy that's controlling the the fat and skinny man who are hunting Hanay and also seems to be the origin of the plane as well that's been circling the moors trying to find him. So we're not quite sure what he wants or what the the motives of him are, but he's obviously the big boss at the top. Yeah. And he's managed to catch Hane and he locked him in a cellar with all of the weapons that he was going to be using in the future, I'm assuming, for his evil deeds. And Hane found the explosives and blew the house up and ran away. So we've left Hane. Pretty tasty, really. Blown a massive hole in the wall. Yeah. But we've left Hane basically where he's been at the start of every chapter so far, just in a, in the middle of a field of heather. Lost in the heather. That's yeah. what this book should be called, really, shouldn't it? E- exactly that. Exactly yeah. that. Bumming around a moor for a few days. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's going to become a chapter soon where he just changes his name to Theresa May. <laughs> 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 so we just dive in and see what this fly fisherman's saying then. All right, then. Chapter 7. The Dry Fly Fisherman. I sat down on a hilltop and took stock of my position. I wasn't feeling very happy, for my natural thankfulness at my escape was clouded by my severe bodily discomfort. Those lentonite fumes had fairly poisoned me, and the baking hours on the dovecot hadn't helped matters. I had a crushing headache and felt as sick as a cat. Also, my shoulder was in a bad way. At first, I thought it was only a bruise, but it seemed to be swelling, and I had no use of my left arm. My plan was to seek Mr. Turnbull's cottage, recover my garments and especially Scudder's notebook, and then make for the main line and get back to the south. It seemed to me that the sooner I got in touch with the foreign office man, Sir Walter Bullivant, the better. I didn't see how I could get more proof than I had got already. He must just take or leave my story, and anyway, with him I would be in better hands than those devilish Germans. I had begun to feel quite kindly towards the British police. It was a wonderful starry night, and I had not much difficulty about the road. Sir Harry's map had given me the lie of the land, and all I had to do was to steer a point or two west of south-west to come to the stream where I had met the roadman. In all these travels I never knew the names of the places, 
but I believe this stream was no less than the upper waters of the River Tweed. I calculated I must be about 18 miles distant, and that meant I could not get there before morning, so I must lie up a day somewhere, for I was too outrageous a figure to be seen in the sunlight. I had neither coat, waistcoat, collar, nor hat. My trousers were badly torn, and my face and hands were black with the explosion. I dare say I had other beauties, for my eyes felt as if they were furiously bloodshot. Altogether, I was no spectacle for God-fearing citizens to see on a high road. Very soon after daybreak, I made an attempt to clean myself in a hill burn, and then approached a herd's cottage, for I was feeling the need of food. The herd was away from home, and his wife was alone with no neighbour for five miles. She was a decent old body, and a plucky one, for though she got a fright when she saw me, she had an axe handy, and would have used it on any evil doer. <laughs> I told her that I had had a fall, I didn't say how, and she saw by my looks that I was pretty sick. Like a true Samaritan, she asked no questions, but gave me a bowl of milk with a dash of whiskey in it. <laughs> like a cat. Yeah. Like, not the whiskey Here, ha not have a bowl of whiskey and milk. Yeah. And here's yeah, some I don't know how I feel about that. What, a bowl of milk? Yeah, just a bowl of milk with a dash of whiskey. Okay. All right. Is that a thing? It's, it's a bit weird. Bread. Yeah. So, so you, got a, you got a burger? <laughs> That's the worst cocktail. Do you get to live a room? I just imagine her putting it down on the floor as well, like putting it in a bowl. <laughs> <Hair out>. <laughs> I lapped it up gratefully. Yes, exactly. Like a true Samaritan, she asked no questions, but gave me a bowl of milk with a dash of whiskey in it and let me sit for a little by her kitchen fire. She would have bathed my shoulder, but it ached so badly that I would not let her touch it. I don't know what she took me for. A repentant burglar, perhaps? For when I wanted to pay her for the milk and tendered a sovereign, which was the smallest coin I had, she shook her head and said something about giving it to them that had the right to it. At this I protested so strongly that I think she believed me honest, for she took the money and gave me a warm new plaid for it, and an old hat of her man's. She showed me how to wrap the plaid around my shoulders, and when I left that cottage I was the living image of the kind of Scotsman you see in the illustrations to Burns' poems. But, at any rate, I was more or less clad. It was as well, for the weather changed before midday to a thick drizzle of rain. I found shelter below an overhanging rock in the crook of a burn, where a drift of dead brackens made a tolerable bed. There I managed to sleep till nightfall, waking very cramped and wretched, with my shoulder gnawing like a toothache. I ate the oat cake and cheese the old wife had given me and set out again just before the darkening. I pass over the miseries of that night among the wet hills. There were no stars to steer by, and I had to do the best I could from my memory of the map. Twice I lost my way, and I had some nasty falls into peat bogs. I had only about ten miles to go as the crow flies, but my mistakes made it nearer twenty, the last bit was completed with set teeth and a very light and dizzy head, but I managed it, and in the early dawn I was knocking at Mr. Turnbull's door. The mist lay close and thick, and from the cottage I could not see the high road. Mr. Turnbull himself opened to me, sober and something more than sober. He was primely dressed in an ancient but well-tended suit of black. He had been shaved, not later than the night before. He wore a linen collar, and in his left hand he carried a pocket Bible. At first, he did not recognise me. Have we met Mr Turnbull before? Because I can't remember what he sounds like. So sorry, yeah, Mr Turnbull is the roadman. And so this is the thing. So I attributed him leaving the black book with somebody as something clever. 
thinking he had done it in order to kind of separate himself from the book. So if he was caught, but actually it's just a complete, he's just accidentally left it with some random drunk guy in the middle of the Scottish moors. Yeah. So he's not actually as clever as I thought he was. There I was thinking Mr. Turnbull was Sir Harry and it's not, it's the roadman. It's the drunk guy who can't do his job properly. He with Sir Harry, he like wrote a letter, didn't he, that he sent off? He wrote a letter with, yeah, but he didn't send the book off with him. And I was, I'm equating the letter and the book as going together. Yeah. yeah, And they didn't. Right. Right. So there you go. So Mr. Turnbull, yes, is the roadman. Is the roadman. Okay, great. At first, he did not recognize me. Where are you that come straying here on the Sabbath morning? He asked. I'd lost all count of the days. So the Sabbath was the reason for this strange decorum. My head was swimming so wildly that I could not frame a coherent answer. But he recognised me, and he saw that I was ill. Hey, you got my specs? he asked. Hmm. I fetched them out of my trouser pocket and gave him them. You'll hey come for your jacket and waistcoat, he said. Come in by, losh man, you terrible doon in the legs. Hoard up till I get ye to a chair. I perceived I was in for a bout of malaria. I had a good deal of fever about my bones, and the wet night had brought it out, while my shoulder and the effects of the fumes combined to make me feel pretty bad. Before I knew, Mr. Turnbull was helping me off with my clothes and putting me to bed, in one of the two cupboards that lined the kitchen walls. He was a true friend in need, that old roadman. His wife was dead years ago, and since his daughter's marriage, he lived alone. For the better part of ten days, he did all the rough nursing I needed. I simply wanted to be left in peace while the fever took its course, and when my skin was cool again, I found that the bout had more or less cured my shoulder. But it was a baddish go, and though I was out of bed in five days, it took me some time to get my legs again. He went out each morning, leaving me milk for the day and locking the door behind him, and came in in the evening to sit silent in the chimney corner. Not a soul came near the place. When I was getting better, he never bothered me with a question. Several times he fetched me a two-days-old Scotsman, and I noticed that the interest in the Portland Place murder seemed to have died down. There was no mention of it, and I could find very little about anything except a thing called the General Assembly, some ecclesiastical spree, I gathered. One day he produced my belt from a lockfast drawer. "'There's a terrible heap of siller in it,' he said. "'You'd better coot it to see it's a-there.' He never even sought my name. I asked him if anybody had been around making inquiries subsequent to my spell at the road-making. Aye, there was a man in a motor quarter. He speared where he had taken my place that day, and I let on I thought him daft. But he keep it on at me, and sighing I said he mourned be thinking, Oh my good brother, afraid a cloosh that wiles led me a horn. (laughs) We couldn't have chosen a less appropriate accent. I know, it's hilarious. But I think even if we were like, oh yeah, just go just go down the Scots route, it'd be so difficult to... It, yeah, even oh, then, he's yeah. gone full out with this like phonetic spelling. The dialect, like, yeah. Do you, just, do, you think, do you think he's showing off? Because Probably. like, I think my, my, um, my certain aural understanding of Scots dialects improved a lot yeah. recently, but like for reading it, it's like... Mm, absolutely, uh, yeah, yeah. So I feel like he's. Um, I'd be interested to see what any like any other audio uh, readers done if they had to like properly have someone read it to them and just like absorb. Yeah, that really difficult to understand. You can kind of get some sort of you, you get the gist of it, but there's so many words. You're like, what's the actual inflection of that and stuff? It's really mm. tricky, but also interesting. It is like a different language. In many ways, I'm just getting permission to do it wrong because of the accent. <laughs> yeah, it's true. True. Yeah, because then everyone goes like, "Oh, Josh, just you know, <laughs> don't well, give up he, your day job." Uh, he was a London. <laughs> he was a London roadman. What could I do? Yeah, exactly. He was a worse-looking soul, and I could not understand the half of his English tongue. 
I was getting restless those last days, and as soon as I felt myself fit, I decided to be off. That was not till the twelfth day of June, and as luck would have it, a drover went past that morning, taking some cattle to Moffat. He was a man named Hislop, a friend of Turnbull's, and he came in to his breakfast with us and offered to take me with him. I made Turnbull accept five pounds for my lodging, and a hard job I had of it. There never was a more independent being. He grew positively rude when I pressed him, and shy and red, and took the money at last without a thank you. When I told him how much I owed him, he grunted something about, I a good turn deserving another. You would have thought from our leave-taking that we had parted in disgust. His lop was a cheery soul, who chattered all the way over the pass and down the sunny vale of Anan. He talked of Galloway markets and sheep prices, and he made up his mind I was a pack-shepherd from those parts, whatever that may be. My plaid and my old hat, as I have said, gave me a fine theatrical Scots look, but driving cattle is a mortally slow job, and we took the better part of a day to cover a dozen miles. What is a fine theatrical Scots look? What are we what are we picturing here? Because I know it's I'm not be picturing full, blending in. It's got to be full on the packet of um, what's that brand of oats? And they just have the the guy on the Quaker. Quaker. No, do you know? What I imagine. You, do you know when you go to those really cheap? I mean, me and Matt enjoy uh, fancy specific fancy dress. Um, it's it's become oh, yes. a thing. Uh, like Victorian child and factory worker were particular favourites. Yes. Um, but I imagine he's got. Was you know, you've got the hats that have. Uh, the hats that have the hair in it, like or like bright fluorescent orange hair that's in the hat itself, rather than like you wear a wig. I imagine he's wearing one of those. Yes, yeah. Do you know what I mean. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the little bear. Like, me and David once in Brighton after a night out, we were still kind of feeling quite jolly the next day, and we decided to go around all the fancy dress shops in Brighton and just laugh at the costumes. <laughs> Amazing. Because that's <laughs> so what we do. And there was literally, as you say, it was like a Victorian poor child was like one that came in a bag. <laughs> and one of my favourites was like, wasn't it like adolescent frogman? And it was basically yeah. Teenage Mutant Hero <laughs> Turtles rip off. Right, like, yeah, okay, because yeah. they had to like, get around the copyright. <laughs> oh, so we so were good. crying with laughter at the amphibian frogman costume. <laughs> <laughs> like, and they had adolescent, and, adolescent frogman. <laughs> and do you remember they had the, um, they had a, they had a unicorn horn that would be for cats. Yeah. And it was a picture of a cat looking severely PO'd. Oh, and it said, he cats like love it. Murder someone. Yeah, it's like, cats love it. And cats <laughs> literally like, looking at the camera like, I am going to murder you. <laughs> oh, that was a good day. I enjoyed that I day. I like to think that's where Hannah goes. Yeah, so the full game. kilt, yeah. sporran, long socks. Theatrical. Yeah. If I had not had such an anxious heart, I would have enjoyed that time. It was shining blue weather, with a constantly changing prospect of brown hills and far green meadows, and a continual sound of larks and curlews and falling streams. But I had no mind for the summer, and little for Hislop's conversation, for as the fateful 15th of June drew near, I was overweighed with the hopeless difficulties of my enterprise. I got some dinner in a humble Muffet public house and walked the two miles to the junction on the main line. The night express for the south was not due till near midnight, and to fill up the time I went up on the hillside and fell asleep, for the walk had tired me. I all but slept too long and had to run to the station and catch the train with two minutes to spare, the feel of the hard third-class cushions and the smell of stale tobacco cheered me up wonderfully. At any rate, I felt now that I was getting to grips with my job. I was decanted at Crewe in the small hours and had to wait till six to get a train for Birmingham. In the afternoon, I got to Reading and changed into a local train, which journeyed into the depths of Berkshire. Presently, I was in a land of lush water meadows and slow, reedy streams. About eight o'clock in the evening, a weary and travel-stained being, a cross between a farm labourer and a vet, 
with a checked black and white plaid over his arm, for I did not dare to wear it south of the border, descended at the little station of Artenswell. There were several people on the platform, and I thought I had better wait to ask my way till I was clear of the place. The road led through a wood of great beeches, and then into a shallow valley, with the green backs of downs peeping over the distant trees. After Scotland, the air smelt heavy and flat, but infinitely sweet, for the limes and chestnuts and lilac bushes were domes of blossom. Presently, I came to a bridge, below which a clear, slow stream flowed between snowy beds of water buttercups. A little above it was a mill, and a lasher made a pleasant, cool sound in the scented dusk. Somehow the place soothed me and put me at my ease. I fell to whistling as I looked into the green depths, and the tune which came to my lips was Annie Laurie. I don't know what that tune is. Anyone know Annie Laurie? Should we find it? Annie, Annie Laurie. Probably Annie a little wartime ditty or something. Probably Annie Laurie. The end. A fisherman came up from the waterside, and as he neared me, he too began to whistle. The tune was infectious, for he followed my suit. He was a huge man in untidy old flannels and a wide-brimmed hat, with a canvas bag slung on his shoulder. He nodded to me, and I thought I had never seen a shrewder or better-tempered face. He leaned his delicate ten-foot split-cane rod against the bridge and looked with me at the water. Uh, and then he pleasantly says something, apparently. What do people from... Can we make it really down? sleazy? Sleazy? Oh, okay. Yeah, because he put his big ten-foot rod against the... Uh... Oh! <laughs> Hideous behaviour. Oh, dear. He's got a good-tempered face, apparently. I wonder if he should just be like really, really calm and chilled. Like, can we make him sound like a yoga, a yoga instructor? teacher? Yeah. Yes, yoga exactly. Yoga. Like, like, okay. That kind of like, you know, breathe in positivity, breathe out yeah. negativity. Oh, Do you know okay. what I mean? Yeah. And I, but I want it to sound like, you know, like those like middle class white women who become yoga instructors and they just basically teach this like awful kind of bastardized version of yoga which is nowhere near yeah nowhere near linked to the original yoga at all they don't really know what any of the terms mean but they just jumped yeah. on the bandwagon because they look good in the yoga pants sorry i just had to get a cultural appropriation like dig in there i was in the, <laughs> Every... was in the middle of a preparatory beat there matt i was getting into roll sorry and ruined it I'm sorry. Go. What were you going to say, David? All of all of the tension was rushing out of Josh's body there. It was. <laughs> also, there's probably a likelihood that we have yoga teachers, teacher as a as a listener. What Matt is trying to say is that there is a stereotype, but what he's not suggesting is that you are a bad yoga teacher. <laughs> uh, what I'm trying to suggest is that you're a terrible person and you should be thinking your life choices. <laughs> Fair enough. To be fair, we very rarely offend people on this. So we can, every now and again. Clear, isn't it? <laughs> he said pleasantly. I back our Kennet any day against the test. Look at that big fellow. Four pounds if he's an ounce. Oh my God. But the evening rise is over and you can't tempt him. I love the fact that this fisherman's meant to be this huge burly guy as well. Yes. And he's talking like we've this. Got, it just makes it even better. The, the picture gray. in my mind is just great. <laughs> I don't see him, said I. <gasps> Look, there... A yard from the reeds just above that stickle. Oh, I, I, I've got him now. 
You might swear he was a black stone. So, he said, and whistled another bar of Annie Laurie. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs> Twisden's the name, isn't it? He said over his shoulder, his eyes still fixed on the stream. <gasps> no, I said. I meant to say yes. I'd forgotten all about my alias. He's in on it. Is he? Or it? He's or is in it... on it. Twiston was the name that he told the politician guy to tell the foreign office guy. Yeah, but how on earth would he have just stumbled across a fisherman who's in on it? Well, the fisherman yeah, but... came to him, technically. That's this book. Um, and that is this book. Everything's a, a massive coincidence. Like how the fact that he just happened to walk into the house of the one person yeah. that's originating the whole knew? conspiracy. Who else, apart from Turnbull, who else knew that that's, his plan was to head back down south uh, at that no, time? No, um, no, the, I mean, it would Harry. seem logical to me. It's so Harry knew, and so the Foreign Office would have been notified. So if there's a mole or a leak in the Foreign Office, they would have known that he was going south to meet. <gasps> maybe it was an actual mole, because maybe they can get from Scotland <laughs> to Berkshire quicker than us, because they, they're <laughs> underground. I imagine <laughs> yeah. like the mole from The um, Incredibles. Incredibles, the mole, the mole. <laughs> the underminers! <laughs> <laughs> That's the voice he should have gone he's with. Gonna come up, he's going to come up in his big drilling machine and just wreck the countryside <laughs> like, hey, they went along. <laughs> it's a wise conspirator that knows his own name, he observed, grinning broadly at a moorhen that emerged from the bridge's shadow. I stood up and looked at him, at the square, cleft jaw, and broad-lined brow, and the firm folds of cheek, and began to think that here at last was an ally worth having. His whimsical blue eyes seemed to go very deep. Suddenly he frowned. I call it disgraceful, he said, raising his voice, disgraceful that an able-bodied man like you should dare to beg. You can get a meal from my kitchen, but you'll get no money from me. A dog-cart was passing, driven by a young man who raised his whip to salute the fisherman. When he had gone, he picked up his rod. That's my house, he said, pointing to a white gate a hundred yards on. Wait five minutes and then go round to the back door. And with that he left me. I did as I was bidden. I found a pretty cottage with a lawn running down to the stream and a perfect jungle of gelder rose and lilac flanking the path. The back door stood open and a grave butler was awaiting me. Oh, we need the voice of a grave butler. Mm. Can he be like really sort of like, sounds like he's beyond the grave. Yeah. Well, I wonder like that, that's a funny term. Obviously, I think what they mean is someone who's a little bit, you know, sad or whatever. Uh, or very serious. Yeah. But it could be like, well, here's the butler to a grave. Uh, <laughs> job, it's not complicated. Do you want anything, sir? No, as usual. <laughs> Give butler, me a silent treatment. As you, uh... you know, like you get those butlers a bit like Jeffrey in Fresh Prince, where it's just oh, yeah. very sarcastic because he's just, it, the, the, the work is below him as far as he's concerned. And he has to just look after these idiots and he hates it. Okay. Do you know yeah, what I mean? So very dry, very like over it. It's very like, like John... just minimum effort kind of vibes. Like, like John Gilgood in um, Arthur, if you've seen that. It's a great reference. Yeah. Come this way, sir, <laughs> he said. And he led me along a passage and up a back staircase to a pleasant bedroom looking towards the river. There I found a complete outfit laid out for me. Dress clothes with all the fixings a brown flannel suit, shirts, collars, ties, shaving things and hairbrushes, even a pair of patent shoes. Sir Walter thought as how Mr. Reggie's things would fit you, sir, said the butler. He keeps some clothes here, for he comes regular on the weekends. There's a bathroom next door, and I've prepared a hot bath. 
dinner in half an hour, sir. You'll hear the gong. The grave being withdrew, and I sat down in a chintz-covered easy chair and gaped. It was like a pantomime to come suddenly out of beggardom and into this orderly comfort. Obviously, Sir Walter believed in me, though why he did I could not guess. I looked at myself in the mirror and saw a wild, haggard brown fellow with a fortnight's ragged beard and dust in ears and eyes, collarless, vulgarly shirted, with shapeless old tweed clothes and boots that had not been cleaned for the better part of a month. I made a fine tramp and a fair drover, and here I was ushered by a prim butler into this temple of gracious ease, and the best of it was that they did not even know my name. I resolved not to puzzle my head, but to take the gifts the gods had provided. I shaved and bathed luxuriously, and got into the dress clothes and clean crackling shirt, which fitted me not so badly. By the time I had finished, the looking-glass showed a not unpersonable young man. Sir Walter awaited me in a dusky dining-room, where a little round table was lit with silver candles. The sight of him, so respectable and established and secure, the embodiment of law and government and all the conventions, took me aback and made me feel an interloper. He couldn't know the truth about me, or he wouldn't treat me like this. I simply could not accept his hospitality on false pretenses. I'm more obliged to you than I can say, but I'm bound to make things clear, I said. I'm an innocent man, but I'm wanted by the police. I've got to tell you this, and I won't be surprised if you kick me out. He smiled. And this is... We haven't heard Sir Walter before, have we? Yes. I'm trying to think if there's like a a politician who's got kind of like quite a... We've done Boris Johnson before, so I don't want to do Boris Johnson. But somebody who's got quite a obvious mannerism or something that we could maybe copy for this person. Because Reese Mogg is just generally a bit of a toff. And so we've done that kind of voice before. It's not like... You're not gonna you're not gonna find much in the the way of deviation from toff if we're looking at politicians. I know it's true. Everybody's <laughs> yeah. really tough. Don't try to go too posh, but just like make everything sound like a political speech, with all the sort of you know peaks and troughs, so that every single word you say has <laughs> a little bit of finality to it. And for the paywall of Patreon, you can do lots of uh, political gesticulating. Yeah. Political gesticulating. Wow. Political gesticulating. He smiled. That's all right. Don't let that interfere with your appetite. We can talk about these things after dinner. I never ate a meal with greater relish, for I had had nothing all day but railway sandwiches. Sir Walter did me proud, for we drank a good champagne and had some uncommon fine port afterwards. It made me almost hysterical to be sitting there, waited on by a footman and a sleek butler, and remember that I had been living for three weeks like a brigand, with every man's hand against me. I told Sir Walter about tigerfish in the Zambezi that bite off your fingers if you give them a chance, and we discussed sport up and down the globe for he had hunted a bit in his day. We went to his study for coffee, a jolly room full of books and trophies and untidiness and comfort. I made up my mind that if I ever got rid of this business and had a house of my own, I would create just such a room. Then, when the coffee cups were cleared away and we'd got our cigars alight, my host swung his long legs over the side of his chair and bade me get started with my yarn. I've obeyed Harry's instructions, he said, and the bribe he offered me was that you would tell me something to wake me up. I'm ready, Mr. Hannay. I noticed with a start that he called me by my proper name. I began at the very beginning. I told of my boredom in London, and the night I'd come back to find Scudder gibbering on my doorstep, 
I told him all Scudder had told me about Carolides and the Foreign Office Conference, and that made him purse his lips and grin. Then I got to the murder, and he grew solemn again. He heard all about the milkman and my time in Galloway, and my deciphering Scudder's notes at the inn. "'You've got them here?' he asked sharply, and drew a long breath when I whipped the little book from my pocket. I said nothing of the contents. Then I described my meeting with Sir Harry and the speeches at the hall. At that he laughed uproariously. <laughs> Harry talked dashed nonsense, did he? I quite believe it. He's a good chap as ever breathed, but his idiot of an uncle has stuffed his head with maggots. <laughs> Go on, Mr. Hannay. My day as roadman excited him a bit. He made me describe the two fellows in the car very closely and seemed to be raking back in his memory. He grew merry again when he heard of the fate of that ass Jopley. <laughs> but the old man in the moorland house solemnised him. Again, I had to describe every detail of his appearance. Bland and bald-headed and hooded his eyes like a bird. He sounds like a sinister wild fowl. And you dynamited his hermitage after he had saved you from the police. Spirited piece of work, that. Presently, I reached the end of my wanderings. He got up slowly and looked down at me from the hearthrug. You may dismiss the police from your mind, he said. You're in no danger from the law of this land. Great Scott, I cried. Have they got the murderer? No. But for the last fortnight they have dropped you from the list of possibles. Why? I asked in amazement. Principally because I received a letter from Scudder. I knew something of the man, and he did several jobs for me. He was half-crank, half-genius, but he was wholly honest. The trouble about him was his partiality for playing a lone hand. That made him pretty well useless in any secret service. A pity, but he had uncommon gifts. I think he was the bravest man in the world for he was always shivering with fright, and yet nothing would choke him off. I had a letter from him on the 31st of May. But he'd been dead a week by then. The letter was written and posted on the 23rd. He evidently did not anticipate an immediate decease. His communications usually took a week to reach me, for they were sent undercover to Spain and then to Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> Why Newcastle? That seems very unnecessarily expensive. He had a mania, you know, for concealing his tracks. What, what did he say? I stammered. Nothing. Merely that he was in danger, but had found shelter with a good friend and that I would hear from him before the 15th of June. He gave me no address, but said he was living near Portland Place. I think his object was to clear you if anything happened. When I got it, I went to Scotland Yard, went over the details of the inquest, and concluded that you were the friend. We made inquiries about you, Mr. Hannay, and found you were respectable. I thought I knew the motives for your disappearance. Not only the police, the other one, too. And when I got Harry's scrawl, I guessed at the rest. I've been expecting you any time this past week. You can imagine what a load this took off my mind. I felt a free man once more for I was now up against my country's enemies only, and not my country's law. Now, let us have the little notebook, said Sir Walter. 
It took us a good hour to work through it. I explained the cipher, and he was jolly quick at picking it up. He emended my reading of it on several points, but I'd been fairly correct on the whole. His face was very grave before he had finished, and he sat silent for a while. I don't know what to make of it, he said at last. He is right about one thing. What is going to happen the day after tomorrow? How the devil can it have got known? That is ugly enough in itself, but all this about war and the black stone, it reads like some wild melodrama. If only I had more confidence in Scudder's judgment. The trouble about him was that he was too romantic. He had the artistic temperament and wanted a story to be better than God meant it to be. He had a lot of odd biases, too. Jews, for example, made him see red. <laughs> Jews and the high finance. I love that's such like a, a a very nice way of saying he was a racist. Like a he massive, was an, yeah. a massive anti-Semite. He had the odd bias. Like, let's call it out, guys. It's racism. <laughs> I feel like the only reason he's bringing his biases up it's because he's basically saying that like they were a liability because he would easily or intent or he would always be more suspicious of or maybe like over exaggerate their significance to whatever was happening mm. rather than actually because his bad prejudice towards them was a problem. Do you know what I mean? The prejudice was a problem because it made him see red and it made him angry and therefore it affected his judgment rather than necessarily because his biases were racist and therefore morally objectable. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, that's almost why he seems to have a problem with it, because it affected the intelligence that he would pass on, rather than because it made him a bad person. Right, yeah. yeah that's damn true. racism yeah. just got in the way. Yeah. yeah. The black stone, he repeated. Der Schwarze Stein. It's like a penny novelette. And all this stuff about Carolides, that is the weak part of the tale, for I happen to know that the virtuous Carolides is likely to outlast us both. There is no state in Europe that wants him gone. Besides, he has just been playing up to Berlin and Vienna and giving my chief some uneasy moments. No. Scudder has gone off the track there. Frankly, Hannay, I don't believe that part of his story. There's some nasty business afoot, and he found out too much and lost his life over it. But I am ready to take my oath that it is ordinary spy work. A certain great European power makes a hobby of her spy system, and her methods are not too particular. Since she pays by piecework, her black guards are not likely to stick at a murder or two. They want our naval dispositions for their collection at the Marine Ampt. But they will be pigeonholed. Nothing more. Just then, the butler entered the room. There's a trunk call from London, Sir Walter. And it's Eth and he wants to speak to you personally. My host went off to the telephone. He returned in five minutes with a whitish face. I apologise to the shade of Scudder, he said. Carolides was shot dead this evening at a few minutes after seven. Oh, girl. End of chapter. Now... I yeah, mean, if going. that isn't just a, well, I was wrong kind of moment, <laughs> literally five minutes before going, yeah, no, no one wants him dead. He'll outlive us all. And it's like literally within the same conversation, he's just died. Yeah. He may as well have come in eating his own hat. Yes, exactly. Yeah. What is the black stone? Sorry, have, have we heard that term before? I, we has have. Has that come up have. before? When yeah, did it black, come up before? The black stone is it's in the, it's written in the book as kind it's of like a, the, the name of... Um, I think I think we're supposed to assume it's like the op the operation is or the the, the organization oh, is right, the organization. Okay. I think. Right, okay. I think that's what it is. Yeah. 
so that's who we're fighting against in this whole thing. Yes, I think they are ultimately the enemy. The Order. Okay. The Order yes. of the Black Stone. Yeah. I mean, it's but, actually yeah. quite a good name, I have to say. Like, you know, it's, you know, Hydra. Harry po- yeah. All those yeah. kind of things. The Death Eaters, like the Black Stone. It's a good, pretty good, pretty good uh, name for an anti-spy network thing. Sure. I'm quite impressed with that. I'm bored with it. Got a nice ring it to goes it. goes all the way to the top. Huh. Yeah. Always, it always goes to the top, doesn't it? <laughs> always it does. goes all the way Never to the bottom. The this goes all the way up to middle management. <laughs> <laughs> They're taking off photocopiers. <laughs> I mean, at least the lot's moved on. This is the, We were sitting there going, oh, the dry fly fisherman's probably going to be the most yeah. boring chapter. He's just going to chat to some guy on a moor. Turns out it's like suddenly this whole spy network has yeah. just enveloped him. Yeah, he's he's in the fold now. He's in the MI6. If anything, the fisherman was a red herring. Ah. Oh, oh, he's done it. Thank he's you. done it. Thank you. Amazing. So, I mean, I'm kind of quite happy about this because it means finally something's happened. Carolides has died. Unfortunately, that's bad because we were trying to stop that from happening. But sure. but at least something now in this conspiracy is starting to come true. And so he kind of vindicates Scudder. Suddenly he's gone from this guy who's like over-exaggerating because even the foreign office guy here was saying oh, i don't think that's true he's exaggerating there it's his biases and all the rest of it that's getting in the way um but it it's vindicated him he, he knows he, he knows what he's talking about and everything he's pieced together is correct so but it's happened early hasn't it it's not the 15th yet uh oh in terms of the assassination yeah but maybe maybe yeah maybe they push it. things forward but he said it was going to happen on a visit and obviously caroline's was never pro like never actually oh yeah scheduled so, yeah, to visit anyone so scudder obviously wasn't completely correct in in what when and where but the what was right you know that what he said happens was going to happen did happen yeah so He's done well in that sense. So, I mean, I'm kind of happy that Hanae's like in the inner circle now because hopefully they'll give him actually some resources to to start combat. Oh, he's going to visit the secret bunker. Yeah, he's maybe. The secret bunker. It's like, this is a pen. It's not any old pen. Yes. <laughs> he's going to be cute. He's going to be cute. He's going to be given all the gadgets. I really hope he gets gadgets. This oh, is I, the one thing this is missing. Gadgets be, you'd get a pipe. Uh, um, that, like um, sp- that puts out poison gas. Yeah, and... I, I, a pocket watch bomb, like you know, like a, a granddad okay, pocket yeah, watch yeah, yeah. that when you press the button a few times, it's actually an explosive. I think there there has to be a fountain pen that when you click it, it like releases the poison into the drink or something. Something like yes, that. yes, yes that would be a good one. Ooh, yeah. yeah. I reckon a top hat that actually houses a homing pigeon. <laughs> <That's> how you get. <laughs> Because oh, I'm trying shit. to think, how would you get messages out? Yeah, because it's like, it's the years. You're like, you, yeah. like, so he's got a homing pigeon in a top hat and you like release it with your message. And you'd have to have that. Little, door, little doors that open. <laughs> you'd have top. to have either. <laughs> the door, the top opens. <laughs> just, he like pulls two little strings or something. And it just goes, yeah. No, he's got a, it's attached to a beard like Abraham Lincoln and he pulls the beard. He pulls his beard. Yeah. And it, and it opens yeah. a little <laughs> trap door. And the, and the... <laughs> oh my Does god, that mistake? would be amazing. That would be Does so good. Mistake? That'd be like Johnny English. Like, yeah, when you're like undercover in like a really serious meeting, and everyone's just like, "Did a bird just fall out your?" No, I don't know what you're talking about. No. <laughs> he has to clean it out at the end of every day. There's just oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's got bird poo all over his head, in his hair. Oh, it's like. He's like he's having he's like having a really like um in depth and very sort of high pressured interrogation. You just see like a little white drip. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, as I say, I'm glad he's in the fold. Hopefully, he gets some resources and other things to kind of actually start fighting this conspiracy. How many chapters is this all together? Is it ten? Yes, this book in total has ten chapters. Right, we're okay, so we are we're getting up to the last left. ones. Yeah. It's getting climactic. To the last, yeah. So they, I, I reckon they're going to start actually doing something to combat this conspiracy now. So yeah, this is just me thinking out loud ahead of my title guess for the next mm-hmm, chapter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think it's ready for your jingle. I think it is. Guess what? The next chapter. Oh, I just looked at it. I just looked at it. Oh. Is it adve- is it adventure? No, I don't it's think it's adventure. No, because he's not, not really. 
I think we're uh, over that now because I don't think he's going to be dressing up as anybody else for the yeah, next couple of we've chapters. Moved on. Maybe it's going to be about the black stone because he's just mentioned it. I don't know. Like uh, I was thinking along that the, line, the, mis- the mystery of the black stone or something like that. The black stone revealed or the Schweigstein revealed. Do that one again. Just uh, just so we can hear your German. The Schweigstein revealed. <laughs> you could tell I never studied a lot German of at school. We did Spanish. A lot of yeah, aggression. Well, it's just German generally though, isn't it? You have to just I'm the opposite. I sadly really camp when I tried to do German. It's like, just Schweigstein. <laughs> <laughs> you, go, you, you go straight to hoofed and he poofed. <laughs> yeah, he hoofed. If I had lollipops, gents, I'd be handing them mm. out to both of you. For Yay! So terribly close to chapter eight. Chapter eight is entitled The Coming of the Black Stone. Oh, yay, we're getting to the conspiracy. I'm hoping that, like, someone actually, you know, there's like a fight scene. I'd like a fight scene. I, I mm. want a heist. I want some kind of like, they're going to do this and we need to do this to stop them. Like, I want, I, that's what I want from this book now. I've, I've sat through a lot of just cat and mouse. <sighs> And now yeah. I want there to be some action. You got it absolutely right, Mr. Honey, but you miss one vital part. Your demise. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and him putting him into some really easily escapable, over-exaggerated death situation where, like, I don't know. There's a, there's a, there's a spinning wheel of death that's slowly moving toward him. Yeah, there's a tiger <laughs> on a rope and the rope's got a candle that's burning through it and eventually it will snap and the tiger will get you. That's Amazing. What, that's what that's what the death situation is. Right. Good. Very nice. Yeah. Um, yes. Coming to the Black Stone. So. Oh yeah. Sorry, it's me, isn't it? I mean. So if you've got any you... thoughts or opinions on this chapter, you can message us on the lazybookclub at gmail dot com. Uh, or if you've got any ideas who or what or where the Black Stone actually are, uh, you can tell us on Twitter. Our handle is as usual at lazybookclubpod. That's right. The, the the witty well is dry, so I'm just going to say that we're also on Instagram at Lazy Book Club. Pod. Well, no, hang on, can I just say we've we've had oh, every now and then poster. we've had a piece of fan art for oh, each yeah. book. I would yeah. love a piece of fan art of Richard Hannay with a pigeon top hat, <laughs> with, a, with a top <laughs> like hat, a with a with a trapdoor, with him going like send the message, send the message, kind of thing. Like that, that's what I, that's what I really want. Jeff Harp listeners, for Christmas. Well, that's what we want to see. <laughs> and the flap opens and the pigeon's dead. So, uh. <laughs> it died weeks ago. You forgot to see it. Putrid maggoty. And on that note, on that note, we will see you next week for the coming of the Black Stone, Chapter Eight, nearing the end. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.